you know, I mean, Nick, what we know and what we've shared, you know, you know, with our readers and what you've written about in your book is the fact that the North and South of Europe cannot survive together indefinitely inside the same economic and monetary union. It does not work. What we don't know. Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, we've often spoken about the euro and how it makes no economic sense, but there is a lot of political will to keep it going. So one of the things that interests me especially is whether that political will will continue. And right now there's something on the horizon which looks a lot like the Syrian refugee crisis, which led to a huge boom in Euroscepticism. So I'm wondering whether you see any parallels to that crisis and whether you think it's going to lead to the same sequence of events for the EU. Well, look, I think the 2015... Um, moment when Mr. Juncker, and it was, wasn't Merkel, it was Juncker that unveiled the EU's refugee policy. And I was there in the parliament sitting next to him. And the policy was anybody that crossed the Mediterranean illegally and set foot on EU soil could stay. I mean, that was the policy. And I said then, this is nuts. Um, then Mrs. Merkel compounded it by saying, you know, we can cope. And at least a million came across the Med in 2015 alone. That led to the most almighty row uh, because Mrs Merkel said, oh, well, you've all got to share the numbers. And the Hungarians and the Poles stuck two fingers up and the Swedes thought, oh, we'll be really nice, lovely, kind people um, and, took, and took a huge number um, as a percentage of their population. Um, that has led to uh, a change in the political weather. I, do you know something? I don't think Brexit would have happened without that. I think it was one of the key determining factors. We knew we had open borders to Europe. We saw Europe opening up its borders. And by implication, people said, we want no part of this. So I think it was, I think Merkel played a huge part in Brexit actually happening. It also led to the growth of political movements like the Swedish Democrats, uh, to Salvini reaching a very, very high level in Italy, and there is now a different political mood. You know, we've got the Greek immigration minister saying we cannot have Greece once again uh, being an open door. Uh, we've got, of all the people, Barnier, Monsieur Barnier, who used to lecture me about the merits of open borders, now limbering up for a run as French president, saying no more immigration for five years. <laughs> you couldn't invent some of this stuff. Um, so it's really interesting. You've also got a very senior figure in the CDU, Mrs. Merkel's party, saying we're not doing it again. Overnight, we've seen Mr. Burrell, the EU's foreign minister, saying, well, you know, Turkey's going to have to deal with this. And Turkey's saying, but we can't. We're already accommodating huge numbers of people. So if the anticipated human caravan starts to come towards Europe, um, it is going to lead to the most almighty row. Interestingly, Pretty Patel has said, we'll take 25,000. Well, that's fine on a humanitarian level, but who, where, how? And, and even her saying that just encourages people to come towards Europe. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, we obviously have some moral obligations. I don't think there's much doubt about that. I mean, the interpreters, people like this. Friend of mine, friend of mine, good friend of mine, who got a conspicuous gallantry cross 
serving in the SBS, was back in February uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, he was there for a few months making a film and he and his colleague had four interpreters, all four were dragged out of their houses last Thursday in Kandahar and murdered in the street, all right? So, so we do have some moral obligations uh, to those people that helped us. But beyond that, what are we supposed to do? Um, are we gonna take 20,000, 50,000, half a million? I, I mean, this is, you, you know, this, this is completely out of control. So it is likely to have, or it has the potential to have, a very, very big knock-on uh, in terms of European politics, in terms of people's trust and belief in the European Union. Uh, yeah, I can see a pretty major crisis coming. Let's just remind readers that, that the reason this matters so much is that if the euro does come under pressure, um, it would lead to a major financial crisis almost certainly, and that obviously has global implications. And, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Nick, what we know and what we've shared you know, you know, with our readers and what you've written about in your book is the fact that the North and South of Europe cannot survive together indefinitely inside the same economic and monetary union. It does not work. What we don't know is what's the moment that starts to break that up. And we have to also understand they've invested so much political capital in this, they'll do whatever they can to defend it. But, you know, history is made up of accidents of the most unlikely little circumstance that leads to a knock-on effect. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put my neck on the line and say this is it, but it's something we have to watch and think about very carefully over the next few. And, and you know, this, this is not for next Thursday. This is something to watch over the course of the next few months. I mean... Yeah, it you know, adds to electoral pressure. I mean, frankly, I mean, you know, if I was living in Afghanistan um, and the Taliban were now not only in control, but they have vast amounts of American military equipment. I mean, you can't even believe the situation there. Um, do you know what? I'd take a chance and leave, wouldn't you? Let's move on to a completely different topic, which is how this pandemic might actually end finally, possibly. Let, let's even hope for that. But who really knows? Still, I think this is going to be the biggest investment story of the next decade, figuring out how to position yourself for the post-COVID world and what it really looks like. I want to start by discussing the divergence between the nations that are getting close to the end of the pandemic and those who are very much stuck in it. So the obvious comparison right now is UK with you know, there's at least a chance that Freedom Day is finally going to stick and also Australia where they're having a lot of trouble with COVID right now. And this is particularly interesting to me because I follow the news media in both those two countries and I've noticed that that the policy responses have been completely different, the scientific analysis completely different, the politicians and the scientific experts have made completely different claims, which suggests to me, first of all, that they don't really know what's going on. But more importantly, it suggests a divergence in how the asset prices in those two countries are going to perform, effectively how the Australian stock market and the Australian dollar perform compared to the UK stock market and the pound. What's your view on where the UK is positioned right now, first of all, and then relative to these laggards like Australia and New Zealand, who might not actually be emerging from the crisis just yet. Well, I've been so fascinated by Australia and New Zealand and the complete level of madness that is going on there that I've actually been covering it on my GB News show night after night. So New Zealand, one case, one 58-year-old test positive. She's locked the whole country down, including the other island. I mean, work that out. Um, yesterday, the Premier of New South Wales, she said, even when we have 80% of the population double vaccinated, and even if 
COVID cases are zero, restrictions must stay in place, social distancing, face masks. I, I, I mean, I just, and that's because the Delta variant exists, but next year it'll be something else. Uh, do you know, I can't see Australia opening up for another year, maybe two years. I mean, they've got themselves into this mindset. It's totally astonishing to me. Uh, so I think Australia and New Zealand are gonna have a very difficult time because that's where they are. Um, it doesn't appear anything's gonna change. This country, well, look, um, I think that we've enjoyed our relative freedoms over, over the course of the last couple of months as it sort of gradually opened up and opened up. And, you know, I was at Lords on Friday watching the cricket with 30,000 people, great. Um, I think we're, I think, I, 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 unless there's a real emergency, I think politically, we've reached the place in this country where we're saying we're gonna to have to learn to live with this, whatever happens. So I think in relative terms, are we going to go into an endless series of lockdowns this winter? I just don't think we are. And you know what? I just don't think people would obey them this time. I think we just reached the point we've had enough. We've enjoyed, not that the weather's been very good, but we've enjoyed, you know, that bit of freedom. Um, uh, so no, I, I, I think that, um, you know, if we do get a difficult winter in terms of the disease, I think in relative terms, the UK will stay fairly open, uh, is all I can say. And America's a really odd one because, you know, it's places like Alabama that are really having a problem right now. The hospitals are full, et cetera. And it is clear to me, um, and anti-vaxxers are gonna hate me saying this, but it's clear to me that the pandemic in America is now a pandemic amongst the unvaccinated. You know, I am convinced of the evidence, not that having the vaccine stops you catching COVID again or stops you spreading COVID. Clearly, that part of the equation doesn't actually work. But I'm pretty convinced with the data that I look at every day that once you've had the vaccine, your chances, and they're not nil, but your chances of getting very ill or being hospitalized are massively reduced. So, you know, in America, it's a state by state thing. But I think in general, I think in general, uh, you, 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 you know, most of the West um, is going to crack on now, um, leaving countries like Australia and New Zealand completely in the lurch. It's really tough for a policymaker because they've been focusing on cases for so long and now the vaccines haven't solved that particular part of the problem. So when they decide whether to lock down or not, uh, they, they can't point at cases anymore. They've got to point at other factors, unless you're an Australian politician, in which case you panic about the cases. Let's, um, let's move on to the economic implications of that because I'm fascinated by whether the the stimulus and the support that's been put in place because of the pandemic, whether it's withdrawn and, and how quickly and what the economic impact is. So the way I'd like to ask this question is, to me, the economy after the pandemic should not be bigger than the economy was before the pandemic because of all this disruption. And yet, the current growth rates, we're expecting that to happen by the end of this year, this year or early next year, which suggests to me there's this, there's this huge amount of artificial government stimulus in the economy that at some point has to be withdrawn. And I don't know how Rishi Sunak is going to manage to do that without triggering a recession. No, the, I completely understand what you're saying. And yet the odd thing is the jobs market. That's the one thing I can't get my head around. We, we, we've still got 1.9 million on furlough, but we've got massive labour shortages. I wonder why we spent 70 billion on furlough <laughs> to finish up where we are. 
I, look, I think America is where we've really got to focus on this because whatever we've spent in terms of stimulus, you know, during the pandemic, it's about half what the Americans have spent and Biden intends to go on spending trillions. But inflation is kicking in in America in a much bigger way than it is in the UK. You know, the, the American inflation rate is over double what it is in the United Kingdom. It's starting to become real over there in a way that it hasn't quite caught on yet in people's consciousness on this side of the pond. Some it has, but not with all. Um, and you've now got an American president in very deep political trouble. I, I, I mean, clearly, the unconditional withdrawal, with, with, withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, I mean, he's being shredded, shredded. I mean, even, even CNN aren't being nice about him anymore. Um, and, and so, you know, when you look at the makeup of the House of Representatives and the Senate, he barely has a majority. He only has a majority in the Senate with the casting vote of the chair. And his majority in the House of Reps is about seven. So these are really almost, in our terminology, hung parliaments. And that means for him to get any legislation through is difficult. And I'm beginning to think that the trillions and trillions and trillions more that he wants to spend, I'm beginning to think uh, he might struggle to do that. So you may find a more abrupt, you may find a more abrupt end to these massive stimulus packages in America could come in the course of the next few months. And that would hit the American economy. You know, I mean, we've had this amazing bull market, uh, you know, particularly in the NASDAQ stocks, uh, you know, and parts of the economy like that. Um, and just a feeling that it can't go on forever. So I think the political implications of Afghanistan could have a very big negative economic impact in the USA. It seems like nobody's going to be spared. Nigel, thanks for joining us. And thanks everyone for joining us at home.